here at Christ the King Church. We're building up God's people by the ordinary means of grace. We're rooting our Christian practices in the historic Reformed faith, and we're preparing our covenant children in the Lord to be the continuing church. And we are just a few short uh, passages away from completing our time in Mark. Our New Testament passage today is going to be Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 65. And our Old Testament passage is going to be Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 7. I'll give you just a minute to turn there in your Bibles before praying for us once again. Let me pray. Father, we come in the name of Christ our Lord, asking for the help of the Holy Spirit as we open the Scriptures. May we hate double-mindedness and love your law. You are the hiding place and the shield of your covenant people. We are here this morning and we wait for your word. May evildoers depart from us so that we may observe your commandments. Sustain us according to your word so that we might live and do not let us be ashamed of our hope. Uphold us that we might be safe and that we may have regard for your statutes continually. You reject all those who wander from your statutes, so may we keep them by your grace. Lord, deceitfulness is useless in the presence of your holiness, so may we cling to the truth of the gospel of Christ. You remove the wicked of the earth like dross, therefore we love your testimonies. And as we hear from Mark today, we ask that you would bless us so that we might hear the testimony of his gospel and apply it to our hearts. Speak to us now, and Lord, may all flesh tremble with reverence at the sound of your mighty voice for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would, uh, stand with me now for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving words, starting in Isaiah chapter 53, <clears throat> verses 4 through 7. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so... He opened not his mouth. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Now we turn over to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, chapter 14, excuse me, picking up in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out? as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. 
And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. In the Lord of the Rings saga, readers meet a group of ghoulish undead men known as the Oathbreakers. Right? They promised to stand with the king of Gondor in battle, but they broke their word, right? They were supposed to show up and fight alongside of him to stand with him, but they didn't. And this left them under a terrible curse. They were unable to truly die and to pass on as the dead do, but they weren't really alive either. Right? They should have stood with their king, but they didn't. So they're under a curse. In this passage today, we see a whole bunch of people who should stand with the king. Remember, these are not Gentiles. We see no Gentiles in these verses this morning. These are all Israelites, right? These are all members of the flock of Israel. These are all sheep who, as Isaiah has said, they've gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. Jesus, the, the shepherd king of Israel, he stands alone. You see, in our sinful condition as human beings, in our fallen estate, we do not stand with the king. If left to us and our own choices, our own devices, we would not stand with the Lord Jesus. Each one of us has our own brand of not standing with the shepherd king. Each one of us has our own flavor of going our own way. Now, there's more than six ways of not standing with Jesus, but in this passage that we're covering this morning. There are six ways that people fail to stand with Jesus, the shepherd king. There's six different flavors, if you will, of failing to stand by Christ. They flat out fail to be faithful to him. They fight the wrong fight for him. They flee naked into the dark away from him. They foment lies about him. They follow him at a distance and they flip out over the truth about him. These six responses are all sinful. They're all sinful in varying degrees, and they take place in two different settings. The first setting that we see in these verses is the Garden of Gethsemane, 
And the second is this kind of kangaroo courtroom uh, in the house, presumably, of the chief priest, right? So there's the garden, and there's the home of the chief priest, Caiaphas. This is the kangaroo courtroom, right? So we're going to start in setting number one, the garden. All right, we're going to start with the most obvious and overt failure to stand with the king, right? This is direct, open opposition. It's a devastating betrayal. And, of course, we're talking about Judas, who just flat out failed to be faithful to Christ, right? The text says that, you know, there's verse 43, there's Mark's favorite word immediately, right? As soon as he gets done having the conversation about staying awake with his disciples, there comes Judas leading this group of armed men, right? And who sent these men? Is this like a a random ragtag group of guys like did Judas like roll up late at night to the local Home Depot and say, I have a job for you guys. Come with me. We're going to go arrest this guy. No, it's not a random mob at all. Mark makes it very clear who these men are from. He lists the full constituency of this group of men known as the Sanhedrin, right? We see the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They're all listed. You need to understand this, right? To put this in modern context, uh, this, is not, uh, this is not a bunch of non-Christians rolling in this room right now and arresting somebody in this room. This would be like the ruling elders, the teaching elders, the local Bible college and seminary professors uh, sending out a a, a group of men uh, who are kind of like a private security force on campus and in local churches, and they're armed to the teeth, and they're coming to arrest a fellow member of the covenant, right? This is an officially sanctioned crew to arrest Jesus. Verse 49 implies that this is actually the temple guard, right? Uh, That they're working overtime and they've kind of left the boundaries of their jurisdiction. Jesus says, look, you used to see me all the time in the temple as I would teach, right? So what are you doing here at night in the garden arresting me now? Why not then and there, right? According to scholars, this was an organized unit, that at this particular time in history was of substantial size. And this is a unit or a detachment of the temple guard that is well organized and well, uh, you know, well arranged, and they've come to arrest Jesus. So it's not just some random group of guys that were stirred up. Right? And notice the tone of the betrayal of Judas. Uh, Judas says, look, here's how I'm going to let you know who this is. Now, why they didn't know, because Jesus says in verse 49, you saw me, you've seen me all the time in the temple. Maybe it's because it's dark, right? It's, it's dark. Uh, you know, it, Passover's the night before. They, they've, you know, they've all had uh, some wine and some bread. Maybe they're a little groggy. Uh, they're all first century Jewish guys. Maybe it start, start, starts all kind of looking the same. I don't know. I don't know why Judas needed to kiss Jesus and why these guys didn't just already know who, who he is. Uh, but that's what Judas does. He says, look, I'm going to kiss the guy. And he comes up and he greets him. This is a normal, it's weird for us as modern men to think of uh, greeting each other with a kiss. This is like their secret handshake. Okay, this is a really good greeting. It's not, it, it's not like, hey, how are you? Like real stiff. No, this is a very personal greeting. And he calls him rabbi, right? He, th- there's, there's this disciple-rabbi relationship between the two of them. And he's still maintaining the auspices of this warm relationship. And R.C. Sproul points out in his commentary that this, the word chosen for kiss here, this isn't like some sort of like begrudging, like going through the motions kind of peck on the cheek. It would be a normal greeting. No, there's some real affection here. So men, to put this in context, uh, imagine you're being betrayed by one of your friends and he comes up and he throws the secret handshake on you, 
right? LeBron James, captain of the LA Lakers, he has a special handshake with each one of his teammates. And Judas comes up and he throws that special handshake on you. Men, imagine that you're being publicly betrayed by your wife, right? And when she comes up and greets you, she doesn't give you that obligatory, like, I have to kiss your ugly mug on the face kind of kiss. She really lays one on you while she takes the knife and digs it under your ribs, right? That's what's happening here. There's this, there's this outward representation of, of warmth and affection, but it's all external, okay? And, and notice what Judas says here. He expects resistance, right? He knows the men that he's been following Jesus with. There's, there's two big problems in their midst, and they're both named Simon, right? Simon, the, Simon Peter is just always seemed to be geared up and ready. And there's this other Simon that we don't know much about, but he was Simon the Zealot, Right? So if you're Simon the Zealot, from what I understand of that, that party of people known as the Zealots, if you're Simon the Zealot, you're following this rabbi around in the first century, and you're learning stuff, and you're hearing parables, and you're kind of going, man, this isn't really my thing. But then all of a sudden, it's nighttime, and a bunch of guys show up with swords and clubs, and you're like, now we're talking. This is my bag. Right? That's how I think, in my opinion, Simon the Zealot would have, based on his background, uh, that this is, this is his wheelhouse. And so Judas rightly expects... Uh, resistance from Simon 1 and Simon 2, right? Thing 1 and thing 2 are going to have a problem with us uh, coming into the garden and taking uh, Jesus away, right? And that's exactly what happens. Uh, uh, Peter fights the wrong fight for Jesus here. I I, I don't think any of us are are, uh, in danger at this very moment of walking in the footsteps of Judas, but what Peter does here, I think for people that are more socially and theologically conservative, uh, Peter's failure to stand with Jesus in this moment is, is more up our alley, so to speak, fighting the wrong fight for Christ. Now, you might say, look, Mark doesn't say that it was Peter. He just says there's one of them standing there. He pulls out a sword, and he swipes, uh, swipes off the ear of the, of the slave of the high priest. Well, uh, you're right. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all like, hey, one, one of the guys, he did this. John throws Peter under the bus. Right? Anytime there's a bus cruising by, uh, John's like, hey, Peter, come here. <laughs> and he chucks him under. Like At one point in the Gospel of John, uh, John writes, the younger apostle outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Right? Anytime John can, he's kind of sticking it to Peter. It's a great bromance in the Bible. But you have, you have to also remember, it's John that writes about the restoration of Peter. Right? So it's, it's, there's probably not a vain rivalry here. There's just a good brotherly uh, a good brotherly uh, friendship. That's how we know it's Peter, right? Uh, the, the other, you, you know, you kind of imagine maybe Matthew and Mark and Luke are all like, look, Peter's kind of the first among equals here. I don't want to out him on this. Maybe they didn't know this detail, right? Remember, the source of Peter's, uh, of Mark's gospel is Peter. Maybe Peter left this detail uh, out when he was communicating the story to Mark. Who really knows? But, but John knew, uh, and John's like, look, Jesus liked me more than you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the people what happened, all right? I have no fear of Peter. Who really knows why this all happened? But it's important to understand uh, it was Peter, and the problem's not the sword. The problem is him, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's really amazing. Uh, you know, no one should ever look at this text, text and go, you know, if they just banned swords, uh, this wouldn't have been, this wouldn't have been a, a problem, right? If they had just kept those, those clubs and those swords under lock and key, we could have avoided this whole thing. Now, the, the problem is Peter. Peter lashes out, and he strikes uh, the, the ear of the, the slave of the high priest. You can kind of imagine now why a few verses later, why the servant girl of the high priest 
is so adamant at pestering him. Like he just, Peter just cut off the ear of one of her coworkers. That's, that's pretty much what happened. Now this is significant. This particular wound, I highly doubt Peter pulled out the sword like a scalpel and was like, I'm just going to take off the ear. It's probably he's going for his head and he just missed. Who, who, I, mean, I don't know exactly, but that would be a strange, that would be a strange move, wouldn't it? Right? I'm going to pull out a sword. They're here to arrest Jesus and I'm just going to take off his ear. But there, it's significant. It's, this wound is significant because this is, is, spiritually speaking, what every man in Israel needs at the time. Uh, they, they don't need an actual sword to the ear. They need the sword of the Spirit to circumcise their ears, as one commentator put it, so they actually can actually hear and understand the gospel. So there's an important, uh, there's an important symbol here, right? But this is not how it's done. A, a physical metal sword or club it isn't going to get the job done. Because the real problem is with their heart. And how does Jesus handle this? Well, with a gentle word, he turns away wrath, as the Proverbs call us to do in wisdom. This could have been a lot worse, right? You've got uh, uh, 11 or 12 guys, and, and from what we know from other passages, they have just a handful of swords amongst them. They don't have many, probably just two or three. And uh, this whole group of guys that kind of does security for a living, they've come with swords and with clubs. And Peter thinks, now's the time to swing the sword that we got, right? Like, it's just not a, not a wise move. It could have been a lot worse. It could have been dead disciples all over the Garden of Gethsemane, right? But, but a gentle word turns away wrath. He asks them a rhetorical question. Look, am I a robber? Is this... Is this the kind of man that you've known me to be, that you need to come in the middle of the night with clubs and with swords? And then it gives them a reminder as to why this is taking place. He's like, look, this is to fulfill the scriptures. And it's at that point that everybody standing with Jesus flees. Why do people fight for the kingdom of God as if it's made of brick and mortar? Why do people still today do what Peter is doing here? Why do they fight as if our enemies are flesh and blood. Well, some don't know what kind of fight we're in and what kind of kingdom we're fighting for because they do not understand the scriptures. That's, that's really the problem here is, is Peter and the other disciples don't know, they don't really understand why all of this is taking place. Ephesians 6.12, Paul reminds us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's quite the thing for, for Paul to say, isn't it? Because Paul is constantly getting arrested by what? By earthly kingdoms represented by brick and mortar, right? And yet, Paul was able to keep things squared away. Now, as we fight this spiritual war, will there be consequences out in the brick and mortar world? Will brick-and-mortar kingdoms of the earth be impacted? Absolutely. But we do not fight this battle with AR-15s, with tanks, and with nuclear warheads. No, no the, the weapons of this fight are water and the word, bread and wine, songs, hymns, spiritual songs, the fellowship of the saints, prayer. This is how we fight. We fight with our Bibles open. We fight with our knees on the ground and our prayers being lifted up to the Lord Jesus. I love what the late Harry Reader had to say about this. Is, you know, he said, there is no culture war. There's a spiritual war. And the results of that war are showing up in the culture. And I think that's dead on. There is a, an invisible battle that has visible results and consequences out in the world. But ultimately, we're fighting against cosmic powers. 
a present darkness, spiritual forces of evil, as Paul put it. Metal swords are no good here. So this is, this is a mistake. This is a way that we fail to actually stand with Jesus on the terms that he has provided for us, is we start fighting for the kingdom as if our enemy fought with swords, as if they fought uh, to maintain brick and mortar. It's much deeper and darker than that. And then there's this guy, this young man in verses 50 through 52, who fails to stand with Jesus. He flees naked into the dark. Who is this guy? Why is he so ill-dressed? Why is he unnamed in this passage? Why does only Mark record this little bizarre event? Some people think it's John Mark, and he's kind of pulling an Alfred Hitchcock, where he's like putting himself as the author of the story, uh, kind of briefly into the story. But we don't really know. That's kind of speculation. But we do know this. This young man was not dressed for action like a man. Right? He was not really ready to endure any sort of conflict or resistance. All he's wearing is a simple linen cloth, a simple linen garnet, garment. And uh, William Lane asserts in his uh, commentary that this Greek term used for young man is used in the Septuagint. It's used in the Apocrypha. It's used by Josephus in his first century writings of Greek. This term is used to denote young men that are on the higher end of the spectrum in terms of their quality and character. Right? So this is, this is not just some guy randomly stumbling out into the garden. This is the, a man who is stout of heart. And this fulfills a prophecy of Amos 2.16. He who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day. I think this story is here to kind of show. Remember, who is Mark writing to in the first century? He's writing to the church of Rome under heavy persecution. And, and what he's describing here is everybody fled even the stout of heart, this young man of a higher quality, even he fled away naked into the dark. That's the loneliness of King Jesus. Nobody stood with him in that day. Even the best of the young men would rather run off naked than be caught dead with Jesus in the dark. Right? Some follow Jesus unprepared for resistance or turmoil. As I read this passage a couple weeks ago in Charlotte, as I was sitting there in, in the coffee shop there on a campus, I thought, wow, this young man running off naked into the dark reminds me, as he's running naked and nameless away from Christ, this reminds me of how some prominent public Christian figures have publicly deconstructed their faith and left Jesus behind. They would rather, they would rather run off nameless, abandoning the title of Christian. They would rather run off naked, free from, in their mind, free from uh, the righteous robes of Christ than to stand with him in a day and an age in which it's not convenient to follow Jesus. Do you think you're ready to follow Christ under duress? Spiritually speaking, are you in a simple linen cloth or are you dressed for action? If your evaluation is that your spiritual attire is inadequate, what should you do about it? So that's the first setting there in the garden. We see this overt betrayal of failure to stand with Jesus. We see uh, Peter fighting the wrong kind of fight. We see this nameless young man running away naked in the dark. And then we move to the courtroom in verses 53 through 65. And again, we find ourselves examining an obvious overt form of standing against Jesus. This is premeditated opposition. 
And we see these false witnesses in verses 55 through 59 fomenting lies about Jesus. I want you to understand the efforts of the Sanhedrin here in this trial. This is an illegal trial, to say the least, in in capital trials, right, where uh, death was a potential consequence. Uh, It had to be during the daylight. So strike one, it's at night. Uh, Secondly, uh, it could not be during a feast or on the eve of one. Well, it's the Passover, so that's strike two. A conviction could not be reached on the same day or the first day of the trial. And according to R.C. Sproul, after they came to a conclusion, they would have to come back the next day and kind of reconsider and reconfirm their decision. And the defense must be heard. Now, Jesus never really gets to launch a real, true, formal defense here. Uh, so everything about this is just, it seems to be a kangaroo court. R.T. France, in his commentary, very helpful, he points out that the language of the text here in Mark, it, it seems like this isn't really a trial at all, but rather it's a hearing to sort out the charges, to, to search out if there are charges. And then he points out that the verdict has been decided before the charges are even clear. <laughs> what are the charges? I don't know. He's guilty. Guilty of what? Now, what grounds? Guilty. Yes, but why? I don't know. He's just guilty. Right? You ever felt that way? Right? Don't even really get a chance to like sort things out. You're just guilty. That's what's going on here, right? They are going through the motions to say that they've sorted this all out so they can send him to the magistrate of Rome, Pontius Pilate, who actually has the power then to put him to death. See, the way it worked is under normal circumstances when Israel was kind of operating in freedom, they would have the, the ability to carry out a capital punishment. But now, since they're, they've been subjected to Rome, they can't. They have to go to Rome and go, here's what we've sorted out, but the final decision belongs to you. So now they can, they, can, uh, they can go to Pilate with all of their, quote, documents in order. It's all been trumped up and, and, and made up. And say, yeah, this is what we've discovered. What did you discover? Uh, guilty. Just It's there somewhere. Read it between the lines. And then they start calling all these false witnesses. And the false witnesses couldn't get on the same page. The law was... You couldn't be put to death except on the witness of two to three people. But as Mark points out and the other gospel authors point out as well, they could not agree. And you see one of the witnesses, at least one of them is quoted here. And it's clear that the witness didn't understand Jesus's comment about his own body, him being the temple, uh, being killed and then being resurrected three days later. You'll actually note if you read the gospel of Mark, that little comment or that little conversation from Jesus' ministry is not recorded in Mark's account. You can find it in John chapter 2, verse 19. But when you read John chapter 2, what you'll discover is that they're actually misquoting Jesus here because they're not smart enough to understand what he said. Right? If, Jesus, if this is a modern American kind of courtroom drama, you can imagine uh, Jesus' defense attorney saying, Objection, Your Honor. The, the witness on the stand is too stupid to testify against my client. He doesn't even understand the words that came out of my client's mouth. He never said these words. You can imagine how frustrating that would be for Jesus. Like, these guys don't get it. The force of their testimony is inaccurate. Why would they do this? Why would they lie? The text makes it very clear that these people, they're not just like making a mistake or misremembering. Listen, you, you don't show up to a random court hearing in the middle of the night at somebody's house Uh, and then testify and just kind of accidentally make mistakes. They know what they're doing. They know this isn't normal. They know this isn't legal. Why they're there. We never find out their exact 
reasoning as to why they would volunteer to break the law of God and lie about Jesus. Maybe they were paid off. Maybe they had something else to gain from Jesus being removed. We don't really know. But the bottom line is they neither know nor fear the Lord their God. They don't truly fear God. They probably know the law, but they don't love and fear the lawgiver. Because knowing the law and loving the one who gave it to us, those are two totally different things. So they break the law by, by lying during an illegal trial, which is really, it seems like what R.T. France is saying is, this is really just them trying to sort out the charges, and all of a sudden it turned into a, a trial. With a noose on the line and everything, right? Just imagine that. Imagine you show up in, in, in Blount County, you show up, and uh, it's a hearing to determine you know, what the charges against you may or may not be, and all of a sudden the gavel gets banged and you're just found guilty. Like, wait, wait, that's not what we're here for. How, how did this happen? That's what's going on in the middle of the night. And as the lies about Jesus abound, the one man nearby in the courtyard is too far away to speak up for the truth. See, Peter has followed Jesus into the house of Caiaphas, but he's followed them at a distance. He's out in the courtyard warming himself by the fire. Jesus needed a friend. He needed a faithful witness. But Peter's out there following at a safe distance. He needs someone to stand up for him. And the only one even remotely close enough to do it is just too far away. How often have you, how often have I, sat in the courtyard, so to speak, comfortable when someone needed to speak up for Jesus. I think in today's society, in today's culture, uh, we're more like Peter in this scene uh, than, we, than we realize. I think there's a lot about Peter and both of his failures to stand, truly stand with Jesus here, that we can relate to. There's this really great story from uh, the Westminster Assembly. You know, 300 years ago, there was this big debate in, in, in London as they're sorting out the Westminster Confession of Faith and other things. There's this big debate on church government and the relationship between church and state. And a lawyer, I can't remember exactly how to pronounce his last name, but a lawyer stood up and he basically was promoting Erastianism, which is essentially the idea that the head of the state is the head of the church. Right? That's, that's bad. Just to be clear, that's not good. And, and everybody's looking around going, who's, who's going to, like, say something? How are we? He, his rhetoric and his, his argumentation is so forceful and powerful. And it seems like Samuel Rutherford just casually looks at his 25-year-old colleague, George Gillespie. And I'll spare you an attempt at a Scottish accent. But he said, rise up, George, and defend the right of the Lord Jesus to govern by his own laws the church which Christ has purchased with his own blood. And George Gillespie, the youngest guy in the room, stands up. And the lawyer who he was debating against said, that young man with one speech has done away with all the years of my learning. Erastianism, praise God, was soundly defeated that day because one man stood up for the rights of Jesus. Now this last, this last failure to stand with Christ is the most visceral. We see a visceral, in-your-face response to the kingship of Jesus. Once again, let me just remind you, these are not pagan Gentile men. These are the leaders of the covenant household of God. And when they hear the truth about Jesus, 
they flip out. Caiaphas, uh, it, he's not named in this passage, but we know that it's, it's Caiaphas in verse 60. The high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? He's calling him to answer. And according to commentaries, the law actually requires Jesus to answer. So wait a minute, Jesus upheld the law, right? He, he was a, a totally righteous man, but he doesn't answer here. How do, what do we, how do we make sense of that? Well, let me ask you a question. If you're actually called into court, there are certain rules, right? You've got to be sworn in, and you've got to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, right? Like there's, there are certain courtroom procedures that you have to follow according to the laws of our land. But let me ask you this. Let's say me and, I don't know, Daniel, you're right there. You're in my eyesight. So me and Daniel, we break into your house tonight. We drag you to my house, and uh, we, we hold court in my backyard. Are you required to follow the courtroom procedural laws of Blunt County and Tennessee and the United States of America in my backyard in a kangaroo court? The answer is no. Okay? Furthermore, probably more importantly, his silence fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 7, which we read earlier for the Old Testament reading. He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And the rest of the verse basically says, and like a sheep in the presence of its shearers, he opened not his mouth. That passage in Isaiah 53 is, of course, uh, the prophecy about the great suffering servant who lays down his life for the covenant people of God. That's what Jesus is doing by maintaining his silence. Furthermore, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant strategic move by Jesus because it forces Caiaphas, this slithering snake, just to get right down to business. Jesus is not going to play their reindeer games. Okay? And so this frustrates Caiaphas, and he just comes right out with it. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed, the son of the blessed? This is a circumlocution. They would try to avoid, at any chance they could, of saying the divine name of God. So what he's saying is, are you the Christ, the Son of God? That's what he's saying here. And Jesus responds very clearly with a circumlocution of his own. He says, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, meaning the right hand of God, coming with the clouds of heaven. One of the the biggest lies that you'll hear from skeptics or opponents of the Christian faith as you're doing evangelism or, or making an, a, an apology, right, doing apologetics for the Christian faith, you'll hear people say things like, Jesus never claimed to be the Christ in the, in the Gospels. He never claimed to be divine. Well, this is 100% here what Jesus is saying. This is a claim of messianic dignity. Are you the anointed one? Are you the Messiah? That's what the word Christ means. The son of God. And he says very plainly, I am. Doesn't get any more clear than that. I am. And then he says, you shall see the son of man. This is pointing to Daniel 7. Talking about himself. He's, he's saying, I'm the guy from Daniel 7. You're going to see him sitting at the right hand of God. This is Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So I make all of your enemies a footstool. And they understood. See, if you're a careful reader of the scriptures, you understand that Adonai, right? The Lord said to my Lord. Yahweh said to Adonai. You understand from Isaiah 6, Adonai and Yahweh in the Psalms and in the, in the prophets, those are seen to be the same person. One's the divine title for God. The other one's the divine name. He's absolutely making a claim to be the Christ, to be the son of God, to be divine. And what he, tells them, what he tells them is, you're going to see me coming with the clouds of heaven. 
going back to the Olivet Discourse, remember my take on the Olivet Discourse, the coming of the Son of Man, that's uh, the Lord Jesus bringing judgment upon Israel in AD 70. Uh, I think that lines up with what Jesus is saying here. He's saying to Caiaphas and to the men, uh, these men who are standing in judgment against him in this room, I'm coming back in judgment against you. You're going to see it. Within one generation, these, man, these men in all of Jerusalem, all of Israel, are going to be brought under the judgment of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is flat out claiming, I am the Messiah, I'm the Son of Man, I will sit at God's right hand, and I'm going to bring judgment upon you. What should they have done when they heard that from Jesus? They should have fallen on their faces, begged for mercy, and worshipped Jesus. But instead, they flipped out. They tore their clothes. Right? That's what the, the high priest does here. He tears his garment. Right? What that communicates is, I've just heard blasphemy. In fact, what they would sometimes do in certain trials, more legal trials and hearings, is that so that not everybody would have to hear somebody utter blasphemy in the court, a few of them would hear the account of a witness. And the way they would communicate to everybody, yes, this witness is attesting to blasphemy, is they would tear their clothes. Because like they're sparing the hearers of having to hear blasphemy and violate their consciences, but they're communicating visibly, yes, there's blasphemy in this case. And the rule was, uh, after you rip your garments as an expression of grief over the presence of blasphemy, these garments could not be fixed. You ever torn something? You're like, I have to get mom or grandma to fix that. I'm going to take that to a professional, right, to get that fixed up. They couldn't do that. These garments just had to stay ripped. They flipped out. They tore their clothes. They accused him of blasphemy. They condemned him. They spit on him. They punched him in the face. They slapped him. They mocked him. The shepherd king stood alone. See, one of the great lies that a Christian can tell themselves, one of the greatest lies that a Christian can believe is, I'm alone. And no one knows what it's like to be me. You ever had that feeling? You ever, you ever had that sense of dread? Or for some of you, maybe it was more like a pity party. You ever felt that way? Jesus knows. He watched Judas betray him in front of all these other men. Peter embarrassed him, followed him from afar, and denied him. A young man and all the others ran away into the dark instead of standing with him. People unworthy of his very presence misrepresented his words. They lied about him. All while no one was around to stand up for him, speak up for him. And men responsible for leading the entire nation of Israel to worship the Lord Jesus. They illegally tried him, they accused him of blasphemy, and they assaulted him physically. Just imagine that. That, that. that should trip us out a little bit. Like the God who designed human hands, the Lord that spoke humanity and everything into existence, who then took on human flesh. He had to feel the indignity of a mere creature ball up their fist, which belongs to God, and strike him in his own face. Humanly speaking, Jesus was as alone as it gets. So if you ever feel alone, despair not. Your king is sympathetic. He knows what it's like to be in your shoes. In fact, he probably knows worse than you know. The shepherd stood alone so that the flock might be redeemed. The king died so that people who do not stand with him might be his church. While we were still sinners, Romans 5 tells us, Christ died for us. Christ did not die for us because we took a courageous stand at his side. He died for us when we were standing opposed to him, far off. That's when he laid down his life for us. 
you may feel tremendous guilt or shame for your sin against the Lord. And the gospel is clear that that guilt, that shame is real and it's well earned because of your sin. But the gospel is clear that fell on Christ. He bore that burden in his very soul. Jesus paid the cost. He paid the price for the sin of not standing with him. How about that? How about that? The price of betrayal, the price of not standing with Jesus, somebody had to pay for that, and he paid for it. People say all the time, I just, I just wish God would have a conversation with I wish we could sort out some sort of fairness, some sort of fair, just agreement. You don't want justice. You don't want fair. You want mercy. You want the grace shown to you by Jesus. In the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn, the rightful king of Gondor, he seeks out the Oathbreakers, and he gives those cursed men the chance to follow him. Right? Those who abandoned the king got the chance to stand with him in battle. He basically gives them a command to repent of their past actions and to follow him into war, and they do. And that only happened, though, because the king, Aragorn, pursued them. The Oathbreakers didn't leave their mountain, find Aragorn, and say, hey, we want to fight alongside you. No, he took the risk. He went into the cave. He went into the mountain and found them and called them to follow him. And today, through the gospel of Mark, King Jesus is calling all of us to follow him. For most of us, it's a reminder. It's a reminder, a call to continue to follow Christ despite our stumbling and our fumbling. But perhaps for some, this text is a call to stop following at a distance, to stop running off into the dark or worse, but rather draw near to the shepherd king who loves you, who stood alone for you. He died for you. Today, he is calling you forth to come and to stand with him. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray.